Good morning. I uh, always like to start off with something funny, especially when we have a, a fairly serious sermon. And I thought I'd make fun of Jeremy. <laughs> but the thing is, I really don't, I've known Jeremy for a while. We're good friends. Uh, but I don't have any really good baggage on him yet. I'm sure if I hang around long enough, I'll get some. I thought about making something up <laughs> just to get him in hot water. But um, I figured I better not do that. <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, though, it is a sincere privilege to be here this morning uh, for a lot of different reasons. First of all, Jeremy has become probably one of my better friends in, in the pastoral ministry. Uh, he's somebody I look up to. Uh, I would say he's in the top five guys in my life that influence me. Uh, I'm sure you know this about him already, but he is a walking Bible. <laughs> And I love it. And I love being around him. And he just exudes in, in, in uh, the Bible and in everything he does and everything that you do. And, you know, it has to come back to the Word of God. And I just, I'm so thankful for him in my life. And uh, it is a privilege and honestly a little bit scary to be here because uh, I know what Jeremy brings or what his heart is about the Word of God. So my message is a little bit different. I'm not even going to try and, and do what he does. So, uh, so a little bit different message this morning. But in all seriousness, I am very glad to be here. Uh, my name is Jason Gerwell. Just a little bit about me. Right now, I live in Winterset. I'm bivocational. I, I do taxes, but I also am a pastor at uh, a church in Altoona, Iowa called High Point Church, associate pastor there. And uh, it's a new church. We've been a, about a year at this. And so we're making the drive back and forth. We're trying to sell our house and get over there. But uh, it hasn't happened yet. Things just, anybody know anybody that's looking for a house in Winterset? Um, I have one. But uh, it's going really well. We started about a year ago with 20 people in a living room. And uh, not that it's about numbers, but we're having probably an average of 200 to 225 people over the last two weeks. Every week it just continues to grow. And it's just fun. And it's mostly people that have never been to church or haven't been to church for a while or, you know, used to go to church and, um, you know, they've just been kind of disillusioned with the church. So it's really encouraging. At the same time, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And that's, it's a completely different context than what I've been involved in before. So having said that, let's, uh, let's get into the Word of God. I, I always like to stand. I don't know what your practice is, but if we would stand, we're going to read John 6. The first 15 verses of John 6. The word of God says this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him. Because they saw signs that he was doing on the sick, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread, so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each one of them to get even a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. 
Now there was a much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we acknowledge our sinfulness and we acknowledge uh, our frailty and our lack of dependence upon you. And so God, this morning as we come to your word, we ask that you you would be the bread of our life. That you would bring meaning to this reality of you being the bread of life. So God, cause the word of God to pierce our hearts. I pray that the words that I speak, the messages that I bring, that the Holy Spirit, God, that you would take that Holy Spirit and make it even to a better message that their hearts hear. God, I acknowledge my frailty and my need for you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. So uh, our church, High Point Church, we're going through the book of John. We preach expositionally through the word of God there. And uh, we're at this section of John 6. So I thought it was appropriate to, to preach this. Just a little context. Of course, the book of John, uh, the context of the book of John is John twenty thirty one that says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the reason why John writes the book, and every story that we hear, and everything that we filter has to be filtered through that filter that God is trying to create, Jesus is trying to create, the Holy Spirit is working that you might believe in the Son of God. Trust him. Faith producing faith in your life. And up to this point in John, we, we've seen Jesus do healings. We've seen him do miracles. But one of the things that you see that Jesus is doing is these names that are attributed to Jesus. The light of the world. The word of God. The son of God. The king of Israel. The lamb of God. And now this morning... In John 6, we see Jesus showing himself or portraying himself or teaching us that he is the bread of life. So when you go, if you asked a child, I have a five-year-old uh, child, name's Judah. If I asked Judah, where do you get your food from? Where does food come from? He would say, from the grocery store, um, from the microwave, Right? We're a busy family with four kids involved in sports and everything else. From the microwave might be a pretty good answer. From the grocery store, from the cupboard, mom makes it. Uh, if you're a first century Jew, all right, in this context, and you ask them, you ask a young child in first century uh, Palestine, where do you get your food from? He'll say, right over there from that field. Or right there from this bowl, we, we take it out of the field and we grind it up and we, we let it sit overnight, leaven, and then we eat it. 
I mean, he, he, they see the process. They see God grow. They, they plant the seeds. They harvest the harvest. They, they bring it in their house. They grind it up. They do the whole thing. A, a first century child uh, would get that. And you have to understand this. If you're going to understand what this parable means or what, what Jesus is trying to teach us and what this would mean in the context of a, of a first century Jew, what John 6 is trying to teach us, you have to understand that first century Jew, uh, Palestine was a poor, fairly poor, agrarian culture, a, a farming culture. And food is vitally important. Bread is a staple. Now we're in a drought right now. Hopefully we're coming out of it. And, uh, and so what that means to us is not a big deal. Maybe we pay 50 cents more for a loaf of bread at the store. And maybe 50 cents more per pound of hamburger. All right, when we go through droughts and, and those things. They have effects on us, but we don't really feel the pinch that much. I mean, we're fairly wealthy America right here. We're in the top 5% in the world. But in Palestine... In the first century, a drought meant devastation. A drought meant that your father might have to move to a different town or your, your family might have to pick up and go to an, a region or an area where there is uh, water or there is work or there is uh, supply. It might mean that you had to sell yourself as a dad or a husband into, into slavery temporarily to provide for your family or even one of your children. Because life in first century Judaism, first century Palestine, revolved around getting food. Okay? From the moment we, they woke up, where do I get food? How, what am I going to have to do? You start, you, you make the bread, you start to meet, need the bread. Somebody goes out into the field to get the bread. Or they go down to the shores to catch the fish. Life in first century Judaism revolved around bread and fish that's their staple diet and we have to understand this if we're going to understand the impact of what these words meant of Jesus's so life revolved around getting food around getting bread their life was consumed by it you might say as we know the definition of an idol of things wherever your heart is and whatever you're taking your time thinking about and whatever you're consumed by is an idol and so this idea of food and bread and, and fish, especially that Jesus is using today to teach us to a first century Jew, he's cutting right to the heart of what, what their life revolves around. In fact, it's interesting because uh, the, the text says that the people were following Jesus around right now because of the signs that he did, okay? Uh, but later he says something different. He, 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 it, it, he originally the people were falling because hey they saw demons being cast out I mean that's pretty cool alright I mean if somebody was casting out demons we'd all want to go watch that that's pretty that's a that's a neat thing I'd probably pay five dollars to see that you know because he was doing cool stuff he was healing people he was doing these neat things I mean this hey let's go check this guy out I mean this is like you know WWF wrestling or something this is entertainment but later, Jesus says something bigger. In John 6, 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're not seeking me, not because you saw signs. So there's something bigger than signs now. It used to be that you came to me to see the entertainment. But now you're following me because you ate your loaves. You ate your, got your fill with the loaves. 
And see, here's where the real pull is. And this is what we got to understand if we're going to understand this text. And we might not understand this in our context. Because bread and, and fish, we can go down to the store and, you know, we have the whole thing laid out. We can pick and choose whatever we want. It's not an issue for us. These aren't the poles of our culture. But for a first century Jew, these were, this was a heavy pole. This was their idol. This spoke to their heart. This spoke to the very essence of their life. Because what Jesus did right here, just so you know, uh, creating ex nihilo, that means out of nothing, he created about eight months of wages. Okay? 200 denarii is about eight months wages to you and I in, in today's context. So you put yourself in, in their shoes for just a second. If you just saw somebody create eight months wages, ex nihilo, out of nothing, what goes through the heart of, a, of the flesh? I'll tell you what goes on. I'm retiring down to the Mediterranean Sea if I'm a first century Jew. I really like this Jesus guy now. I mean, before there was entertainment, but now I'm thinking retirement. Any of you ever read the book, John Piper's book, you know, uh, uh, John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. He talks about most Americans' goal is to retire at age 50 and go down to Florida and collect seashells. Well, these guys would be thinking about the Mediterranean Sea and doing the same thing. It's just a little closer for them. That's what they're thinking. They're thinking, all my life is taken care of. I don't have to wake up in the morning and worry about collecting food anymore because I got this Jesus guy and he's going to take care of it. He, mean, he just created eight months wages. I don't have to work. You know, if we make this guy the king, because that's what they want to do at the end of this section of scripture, they want to make him the king. All right? If he's the king, this is like welfare. Right? This is like, it's, it's a done deal. I mean, all my stuff is taken care of. I don't have to struggle anymore. I don't have to wake up worrying about where I'm going to get my food from. Do you see the pull? Do you feel it? You know, and we need to, in our context today, you know, it wouldn't be, again, it wouldn't be food and fish because those are prevalent. Uh, but our, it still would speak to our heart, this comfort, this, this wanting to take the easy way, that, that speaks to our heart and today's culture, doesn't it? I mean, Martinsdale, if we wanted to fill this, this church and it's pretty full, but if we want to fill everything and have people around the back, I'll tell you what you could do. You guys interested? All right, we want to fill the church, right? You say, put an ad in the paper and say, free 60-inch TVs to everybody who stays and hears the sermon. All right, free iPads, young people. I guarantee everybody in Martinsdale, a lot of people would be in this church. It would be packed next Sunday if you put that ad in the paper. Why? Because that, that speaks to where we're at. I mean, those are the things we want. I mean, those are our desires. Those are our pulls upon our life. We, we are a context, we are a culture who loves stuff, possessions, comfort, ease. But Jesus isn't interested in feeding our idols. And I, the thing I love about John chapter 6 is, I don't think there's any chapter in the Bible where it goes from being so good to so bad in such a short time. Things are good now. Everybody loves Jesus. Right? He just fed the 5,000. <coughs> Things are well. People are being provided for. Everybody's praising his name. By the end of John 6, there's just a few weak-kneed little um, disciples following him around. So how does that happen? What is Jesus trying to teach us this morning? And, and Jesus offers a test. He offers a test to Philip. And I want to offer you a test this morning. 
to find out where your affinities lie, where your affections lie. That is the test of John 6. To find out whether I'm a sheep or a goat. And if I'm a sheep, am I exercising faith? But primarily is where does my heart lie? Because these people, these were religious people. We're going to see. These people thought they were on the right track. Where does your heart lie? Where does your desires lie? And, and this morning as I offer you a test, I want you, my heart for you is to be honest with yourself about who you are and what you are and, and where you are with God and where your passions and desires and where your heart lies. That's the key. That, that your heart would be Psalm 26.2, the heart of David. It says, prove me, O Lord. Try me. Test me. Test my heart and my mind. This morning, I want to test your heart and your mind. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.13, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on a foundation with gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, straw, food, TVs, iPads, whatever you want to say there, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose itself because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done so when you test yourself will it stand the test of the fire I have that, this test at my house I always tell my kids well, will it burn at 5,000 degrees well, then it's probably not worth getting too upset about is it that's the test this morning that is the test where is your heart lie what is the things that you're shooting for? You're desiring the source of your faith. And I want to do that by looking at two people. Philip got tested, so we'll look at Philip, but also the crowd here, because I, I think these two tests kind of fit either, they're kind of two groups of people. So we're going to look at the crowd and test and find out where they got this thing wrong, because they got it wrong. We're going to look at Philip, because Philip, Jesus tested Philip and, and, uh, he failed in a lot of ways. So first we're going to start with the crowd, the people. Now, it should scare us a little bit when we look at the crowd, when we look at the people. Because we see a couple things here. First of all, it looks to me like they got it right in so many ways. When you turn to the end of the section that we just read, they're calling him the prophet and they want to make him the king. That sounds like they got on the right track, doesn't it to you? They want to make Jesus the king, and they call him the prophet. Now the prophet there, that, that context of that, just so you know, is, is from Deuteronomy 18.5, where Moses said that someday that God would raise up a prophet like him that would speak to the people. This is from way back in the Old Testament when, when Moses is leading the people out, out, of the, out of the desert. And so they were saying, yeah, they were remembering back in the Old Testament saying someday Moses said he would raise up a prophet that would speak to the people on behalf of God. So they were, it seemed like they were getting it right. It seems like they're on the right track. They want to make him the king. But they didn't. They didn't get it right. Because we know, again, John says in John 6, 26, that you're seeking me only, not because you got signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
You're seeking me because I fed you. I was your chef. Therefore, the, the title of the sermon, Chef or Sovereign, Savior. He says, you don't really believe in me. You know, it's interesting uh, at High Point Church, where we're at, is that we go out, we do this thing called calling. We go out and knock on doors, and we don't necessarily present the gospel to people. We just invite people to church because we don't really know anybody in the community and we're trying to make friendships and, and just invite people to church. So we go out door to door and it's very interesting. But what I found in calling is that everybody's going to heaven. Everybody I talk to. Like 95% of the people in Altoona tell me they're going to heaven. And yet we know by the word of God, by Jesus' own mouth, that that's not true, don't we? John, Jesus said that the road is narrow and few who find it. The road to eternal life is narrow and the road is wide that leads to destruction and many are on it. And the crowd test is the object of your faith. People love to talk about Jesus. They love to follow Jesus. They love him for all these things that they're going to give him. But they're, it's, it's a bankrupt faith because its object isn't really in the person of Christ. It's in the stuff that they're making Jesus into the idol that they want him to be. To fit their own little world and their own little desires of their own hearts. It's, it's idol worship. Calvin says our, our hearts are like idol factories. The human heart is like an idol factory. And that is so true. Christian Smith, uh, uh, an American uh, sociologist, did a study of, of American evangelical Christianity and came up with the anachronism that described our Christianity today in our culture. It's moralistic therapeutic deism, he called it. MTD. Moralistic in that Jesus just wants you to be a good guy. Not watch rated R movies. Clean living therapeutic in that Jesus is there to help you when you're you know with your problems and to make things go better for you and deism is he's that butler in the sky you just you know rub the little lamp and here comes Jesus out of the sky our hearts are idol factories we love a Jesus that heals we love a Jesus that's going to help us be successful financially we love a Jesus that fixes relationships we love a Jesus that gives us success we love the hippie Jesus that's the Jesus I grew up with that cool you know you know Jesus that you know the, uh, my my sister I grew up in a hippie culture all right my parents were big hippies so they gave me a Jesus bobblehead doll. They thought that would be cool, you know, for me to put on my desk. I don't like, I threw it away. But, you know, this, Jesus is this cool guy, you know. He's just really neat, and he's a good teacher. And, or the, and the social gospel Jesus, that Jesus wants to give social justice to the world, or the Jesus that, you know, wants America to turn back to its spiritual heritage. There are many Jesuses out there. Many Jesuses. I had the privilege to go to Africa here a couple years ago and, and saw uh, firsthand, you know, the, the, the prosperity gospel alive. The, the prosperity gospel being this idea that Jesus wants you to be healthy and wealthy and happy. And it's so sad when you have to look at a man who comes forward who's on his last dying breath because 50% of the people in, in the village where I was at have AIDS. And he's looking in you in the eyes because the pastor told him that if he comes forward and he has enough faith and if I lay my hands on him, he could be healed of his AIDS tonight. 
And I'm looking at this man going, okay, what, you know, what do you do? <laughs> it, it's not funny then. It's not funny. It's not funny. I've also had the privilege to be in Auschwitz. Uh, I had a chance to, to preach in Poland. And I'll never, I'm haunted by Auschwitz. The, the reality of Auschwitz haunts me. What do you preach to somebody in Auschwitz? You try the prosperity gospel there. God wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy. He wants to give you food. There's no food. He wants you to have a, you know, to live and, and be successful. No, you're on your way to the gas chambers within the next week or so. The, the message of the gospel is applicable for any place, anytime, anywhere. These things just don't add up. The problem with a useful Jesus is that it doesn't require a change of our desires and of our heart. It lets us keep the same desires that we always had just in the context of Jesus. I want to be rich? Well, Jesus is now going to help me be rich. I want to have a good marriage? Uh, now Jesus is going to help me do that. Not that he won't do these things. But we have to be careful and ask and test our own hearts. Are we being idolatrous here with our Jesus? And the way we see him and the way we worship him and the way we love him. Because Jesus says to these people, your fathers ate the manna in the desert and they died. This bread that comes down from heaven, him, if you eat this, you will not die. That's what Jesus said. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I say to you that you've seen me and you do not believe. The test is where do you, is Jesus, what kind of bread is Jesus to you? Is it a fleshly thing that burns up or goes away? Or is Jesus this life-giving thing, eternal life, abundant life in Christ? That I want to seek first the kingdom of God more than anything else. Yes, I want to be successful. Yes, I would love to have a, a, a great marriage. But to get those things, first is to seek the kingdom of God, to seek the face of Christ, to, to go to the cross and let God overflow and magnify. In the way of application, to be very practical, as I prayed about this, it's not hard for, for application here. I have a daughter who's, I'm glad she's not here. She's easily angered. She's a Dr. Jekyll, Mrs. Hyde. And it's a battle. It's a struggle. But praise the Lord. I'm so thankful for her. I mean, she's a great young girl. And I'm, but she just wakes up on the wrong side of the bed quite frequently. And so for me, as a father, I don't like to deal with somebody who's kind of Eeyore-ish and unhappy. So I say, don't be angry. Ainsley, quit being angry. Would you stop acting that way? Quit it. Because why? In my, I just want peace. I just want things to work out, right? I just want to have this nice little Christian house where everybody's happy and clappy. Well, it's not working out that way. And so what God has showed me is in this context of, okay, Jesus, be the bread. Be the bread for me. And what God showed me is, is that, look it, she's always might struggle with this, 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 
default position of being Eeyore-ish or angry, right? My job as a dad is not to fix that necessarily, but to take her to the cross. Hey, look at I understand. I get angry. I, I got my own set of defaults. And my job for her is to take her to the cross and say, this is what you do with your anger. This is what you do in the morning when you wake up and you don't feel like talking to anybody or you just feel like yelling at somebody. You go to the cross. You ask for help. You ask for strength. You ask for forgiveness. This is your life, Ainsley, is to go constantly with this default position and to take it and use it as a tool and an instrument for God to be bred to you on a daily basis. This is what that looks like in reality. Or in the context of tragedy. When you lose, we're going, we've had a couple pretty serious tragedies in the church. God will, God will be enough. God will be enough for that, for you. If you're going through a tragedy or a sickness or a trouble, the promise of God, this is, he, he puts the bread. We're going to take communion this morning. He puts the bread in your mouth because he's God. He's Jesus Christ. He, he's powerful. He is the one who gives life. So in the context of, of tragedy or trouble or sickness, Jesus, I, I need to taste you and see you. I need to taste you as the bread. I'm, I'm empty. I'm weak. I have no strength. On the context of my drive home, I have no idea how to be a dad today when I walk through those doors. I'm angry. I'm tired. I need the bread of life to when I walk through that door to make me supernaturally a man of God. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, Jesus says. He changes the very desires. He's in the process. Where do your desires lay? And I pray that you would come. I keep coming back in this John 6. This is where our hearts should always end up. When Jesus, when Peter says at the end of this, when everybody's leaved and abandoned, are you going to go too? Jesus asked Peter. And he says, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And my prayer for you and then this test is that you would be so sick of whatever the idolatry of your heart is that you would turn to Christ and say, what am I going to do with this? I, I, this, idol, this idol I've created, I, it's worthless. Where else am I going to go but to Christ? Second test. So, chef, Jesus, chef, or savior? The second test, Philip. Jesus tests Philip. It says that in the text. Where are we going to get this food? Right? There's eight months worth of food. I mean, this is uh, the context of thirty to $40,000 in today's context of food. Where, where are we going to get this, Philip? And I, I like Philip. I can, this is me. I, I'm not so much a crowd. I can relate to this test a little more. The Philip test. Philip, uh, I can, I, he make, he, he's just so practical to me. Uh, he's so calculated. He's no sign seeker. He's not in the flashy stuff. He's not in the entertainment. He's a practical man. It's got to make sense. He's not impressed with this flashy, you know, feeding people and healings. And he needs facts. He wants proof. He wants to touch. He wants to see. We know this about Philip in the context of John 14, not just here, but also in John 14. We kind of get a feel for who Philip is. And in John 14, Jesus is laying out some pretty heavy 
theology and, and concepts about himself and about who God is. And, 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 and Philip says in John 14, 8 and 9, Lord, show us the Father. And that's enough for us. And Jesus said, have I been with you so long that you don't still, that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Again, you see Philip's heart. Hey, can we just see this? Can we just see God? I just want to touch him. You know, I just want to see him with my eyes. Can we? He's so practical. In the context here, we, we got to understand, maybe give, to give Philip a, a little bit of a break, as you read the parallel con, uh, text in Mark 6, is a parallel text to this one. We know that Philip is probably a little tired. Okay, they've been out sharing and doing things, and they've been out for a long time, if you read Mark 6. And they were planning on a nice little break, a retreat, if you will. They're, they're, they were planning on relaxing. And then all of a sudden, they look up, and here comes these thousands, 20,000 people, approximately. 20,000 people come, and they want, they want fed, they want... They want to be ministered to. So on his, you know, have you ever been there? I've been there where you're planning on just coming home and relaxing and, you know, that's not what's going to happen in your life. We've all been there. Okay? So we'll give Philip a little bit of a break. But I won't give Philip a break in some ways because he's seen the miracles. Okay? He was there when Jesus turned water to wine. He was there when the nobleman's son, if you go back, was healed. He was there at the pool of Bethsaida where the man was, was healed. He's seen Jesus work. He's seen, he knows, and yet he still forgets. That's why I can relate to this Philip guy. Over and over and over again, he's seen Jesus work and yet he still forgets. He still turns to natural reasoning. He still turns to logic. He still turns to worldly thinking. Friends, we are frail creatures, are we not? We easily forget. Which is why, you know, in doing your study on John 6, you're going to find yourself back in Moses, back in the, in, the, in the Exodus, because there's so many ties between what Jesus is doing and the bread of life and this whole bread thing and with Moses. You know, in the context of Moses, the Jewish people walk through the Red Sea. I mean, 80 foot waves on both sides and they're walking through on dry land. A couple days later, they're grumbling. They want their meat pots and their garlic. They want to go back to slavery. And that is us. We're Israel. We know that. We grumble and complain. Well, let me test you this morning. Does everything have to make sense for you, to you, for you to trust God? Where is Jesus getting you in over your head? Where you have to have faith and to trust him? Or does everything have to add up? Does your budget have to tie out to the cent? And um, before you make a, a decision on whether to trust God or does lightning have to strike or do you have to have the money in the bank or do the stars all have to align? Because many of us are like this. Well, you'll be disappointed with Jesus then if you're waiting for those things to happen. Because although Jesus can do all those things, that's not the bread he's providing here. 
Philip underestimated the wealth of God. In his tiredness, in his busyness, whatever you want to call it, he underestimated the wealth of God. Why? Because he saw wealth, he saw that, and he saw dollar signs. Where are we going to get $30,000? He saw money. Aren't we the same? Friends, this economy could tank in a second. What will your retirement plans be then? Jesus has a treasury of wealth beyond comprehension. And this is no fairy tale, let me remind you here. We serve a living and an active God. He's alive. What kind of God do you serve? And have you forgotten what he can do and what his promises are? Or are you just so tired and busy with life that you barely forget, remember God throughout your day and what he can do through you and with you? Have you turned your heart and faith to him? In contrast to Philip and in contrast to these chef seekers, we find our, in our own lives we do a lot of the same things. And I find a lot of encouragement, even though these people failed, even though Philip failed. I find encouragement in this text. One of the things that God reminded me of encouraging is that he's so gentle, isn't he? With Philip. I mean, if it was me and if it was my kid, I'd give him a little, you know, what do you, come on, we got to get this right. What are you doing here? But Philip gets to serve the bread. I mean, he uses Philip despite him. It's like Jesus is saying, all right, Philip, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use you, and you're going you're gonna to actually get a, even though you doubt, and even though you don't get it, I'm going to use you as an instrument to deliver what I'm going to do. Despite you, I'm going to use you. That's encouraging. He didn't tell Philip to go sit in the back while the rest of the disciples got to deliver the bread because he failed the test. No, God uses even Philip, and that's good. God, I acknowledge that I don't see you as the bread of life, but I'm so thankful for the encouragement that we get through the word of God, through Philip. But also, whenever I need to know, whenever I need encouragement, whenever I feel like I've failed, whenever I want to understand uh, these desires and these, where my desires are at, whenever I struggle with that, where my faith is truly at, I always turn to Hebrews. Which is quite often. The section of Hebrews is, is my favorite section of Scripture. I'm just going to turn there for a second. Hebrews 11. And all of the stories. But when I'm having these tests, when I want to know, what does this look like again practically in my life? What does it mean to have Jesus be the bread of my life? You know, Hebrews 10, 11, 12, even in the 13, or where I go. When I'm feeling like Philip, because I do, you know, in my life, uh, I get, the reason I get Philip so much is because uh, I, I've failed in this way so many times. I'll never forget the first call I got to ministry. I was a, a CPA uh, gonna, getting ready to be a partner of a firm. And the call of God came in my life and, and uh, the, the, it was a youth pastor job. And we're talking huge disparity in salary here. And I got four kids. 
All right? A partner in a CPA firm or a youth pastor. I'll just be honest with you. I chickened out. I did. The numbers didn't line up. <laughs> and for the family budget. How disappointing was that? But God in his grace and mercy didn't throw me on the shelf. A year later, an offer not even as good as the first one came along to be with a fellowship of Christian athletes as a missionary for them. <laughs> And, and uh, the numbers were even wider this time. I learned my lesson that first time. I wish I could say I did it all the time. But how much better it was to say, God, I grew up poor. I mean, being rich was important to me. Growing, you know, The reason I chose the accounting profession was because I had an uncle who was rich. I wanted to be rich. I grew up very poor. And so now to choose poverty, you know, not, you know we're very rich. Even though poor people are rich here. Okay, but to choose that for my wife and my four kids was tough. I remember thinking things like, I'm not going to be able to buy that speedboat and go to Disneyland. Oh my gosh. Here I am. To, to, I, I'm selling out to follow God and his blessings for Disneyland. How ridiculous is that? But it was so real to me. So real. And then to follow God and to see him, I don't know where the money is going to come. I mean, people have to support you as a missionary, right? How's that going to happen? Who's going to give me money? And, and to see the blessing of licking those envelopes with my kids and sending them out and see people respond and give back and to see God provide. How much better than to go to Disneyland? What a fool I am. We're all there. And that's why I love, when I feel that way, when I'm trying to be so practical and reason, I turn to Hebrews. And I could go through any of the stories, but the one I picked out this morning is one that's near and dear to my heart. First of all, it's in the context of Moses. But it's in Hebrews uh, 11.24. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So what does that look like as far as bread and as far as me, us being Phillips? Okay? Moses had it all. The American dream. Prominence, he was second in command. Peace, Prosperity. I mean, he, he lived in the castle. He had it made. Everything that American people want, every idolatrous desire and passion that we've created in this culture, Moses had. He had it. And I'm there. I can relate to that. But he looked out every morning. Okay, so there he is with his, he's got the harem with the palm branches. And they're fanning him as he's sitting there with his pina colada drink, probably. Looking out. And every morning as he's getting fanned and drinking his pina coladas, living the life, he looks out and he sees his people in slavery. He's watching them be beaten. He's watching them slave and work. And he knows in his heart what the truth is. We know that. He knows that he's a Hebrew. And he's burdened. And he's burdened. And he's burdened. And there's this pull. Can you feel the wrestle? I felt that. I pray that you have too. Because in that wrestling, we find out where the test is and where our heart lies. And for, and for Moses, 
the overwhelming reality that if he stays, he's sinning. This is sin for me to stay because the reality is, the truth is, is I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. It says he, follow, the, he could esteem the reproach of Christ. It is better for me. I will be happier out there in the, in the mud pit, in the slavery, than I am in the king's, in the Pharaoh's castle. Wow, that is heavy. And I feel, I pray that you feel that pull. This is not practical. This does not make sense. When he walked out of that, out of that castle, and we know that we won't go into the context of that, but when he left that, he was leaving every idolatrous passion in the wind and following Christ. An absolute, in, in, to the world's eyes, stupidity. Okay? I pray that you feel that pull. And I pray that you're encouraged through Moses. And that it will, through the word of God, raise up in you in whatever context or situation that you're in this morning, that you would say, you know what, God? My heart is idolatrous. I'm gonna turn and I'm gonna trust. And the thing that he was trusting in, the thing that he placed his faith in was in the reward. And the reward was not stuff. The reward was an eternal kingdom. A heaven, a city without foundation. Whose foundation is the author and creator. It is Jesus. And as you read through the rest of Hebrews, you will find again and again people just like you and me. And that's why I love Hebrews. Moses. Okay? He doubted God. David, the adulterer. Abraham, who sold his own wife and this gave out his own wife and tried to sell her into slavery. The prostitute, Rahab, uh, chicken little Gideon, all these people who were so weak, who made a mess of it, and yet God used them. It's so encouraging. And some of the people had success. Some of the people stopped the mouths of lions, it tells us, and, and escaped the edge of the sword. But some of the people were sawn in two and, and were destitute and wandered it says tormented but regardless of what happened to them they had Christ they had the bread of life they tasted and saw that the Lord is good and this morning as we come to the table the communion table I pray that this would be a reality for you that you, when you take that bread, that you would test your heart one more time. And still, that you desire the bread of God. Because it's just a picture of who, what Jesus is for us. That you would desire this bread more than anything this world has to offer. And that's a, that's a process. That's, that's something that we continue to battle with on this earth. If you don't know Christ this morning, you know, this, this is crazy. You know, you, you read through John 6. It says that you've got to eat this flesh and drink this blood, Jesus says. But here's the thing. If you're desiring stuff that's going to perish, that's going to be, uh, with, if the economy goes down or if there's a war or whatever, and your whole world falls apart. God in the Bible, in Isaiah 55, 1 and 2, and I'm going to stop with this, and then the ushers, after I read this text, if you'd come forward, we'll 
take communion together. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and labor for that which is not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. That food is Jesus Christ. And whether you're a Christian or whether you're not a Christian, I beg and plead you by the mercies of God to throw, to cast yourself upon Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross. What he did on that cross was to take away the sin, all your idolatry, past, present, future, and give you a righteousness that allows you to desire the things of God. And the thing about churches, why we come here and why we do this this morning, is that he does it. You know, we're going to get into John 6 here in, in ABF. But it's God's work. God gives you the life. This morning, he set a table. He's feeding you. You didn't come. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. This morning, as we take the bread and the wine, God came to serve you. Like I said earlier, he puts the food in your mouth. This is the reality. This is how we know. This is the test. Is that true for you? I pray that it is. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And Jesus, uh, I just acknowledge my own frailty again and God I just pray that um, you would be the bread of life to the people everyone in this room that every here that people would get, come to an end of themselves and their idolatry and that they would turn and hope to this statement that I am the bread of life he who comes to me they will never hunger they will never thirst maybe that's for the first time Maybe it's for the 10,000th. Whatever it is, God, cause us today to turn our hearts. Spirit of God, come change our desires. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.